Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, the vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you look up at the screen, that's a word that none of us really likes to think about. We ask ourselves, do we really ever sin? I know I don't. <laughs> I mean, I have mistakes, right? I, or I make mistakes. I have weaknesses. Um, there are areas in my life that I need to work on. But do, do I really ever sin? Sin seems kind of like an outdated thing, like my, something my grandmother used to spend her time thinking about. And it seems confined. It's not in our daily vocabulary, right? Like we don't talk about it in conversations. The most I hear sin, it's like confined to talking about binge watching Netflix or eating a fattening dessert, something like that. And sin has been replaced with phrases like deterministic brain chemistry or herd instinct behavior. Or we just replace it with words like weakness error, mistake. As I was preparing for this message, I stumbled across a Puritan prayer, and it's called, Yet I Sin. And you'll see the first sentence. All we need is the first sentence here. Um, Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. I mean, there is just too much darkness in there for many of us to make such a confession about ourselves. I'm sure that you've read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago, right? You've read that. Um, well, perhaps you've heard the famous quip. It's, it's a popular line from that, and it's that 
the line between good and evil passes right through every human heart. Is he right? Is there evil sin in us? Well, if we are to trust this book of ancient scripture, and if we are really to listen and believe the passage that we're about to read this morning, it tells us about sin, and it says that we are sinners, and it tells us about sin, and this passage reads us. So we not only read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. It tells us our story. It tells us about ourselves. And our scripture this morning is where we see the first time sin is used in the Bible. So sin is introduced in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve take the fruit, right? But the first time the word sin is used as a biblical concept in the Bible is Genesis 4. And it's not Adam and Eve that come up with it or Cain and Abel. It, the, the voice of God introduces sin to us, defines it as a biblical concept. And he doesn't describe it in abstract terms. He describes it to Cain as something that's crouching at the door. It desires him. Somehow Cain must rule over it, master it. It's an interesting concept. And if there's something that I want to leave you with this morning, it's the truth that we should not ignore our own sin or sin that's in the world around us. Sin is not just something that lives in the social structures of the world. Yes, that is true, but what we see here is that sin is personal. It's measured to you. It's tailored to you. It's in you. And what's happening in this passage in Genesis 4 is that all this is happening inside of Cain, a lot of this dialogue. It's in him. It's not outside of him. And honestly, sin wants what's worst for you. And if you're new with us this morning, after that introduction, you picked a great Sunday to be here. And I want to catch you up to speed just a little bit about what we're talking about, give you some context. So we're going through the book of Genesis right now. And so last Sunday, Gabe preached on Genesis 3, which is the fall, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they decide, well, they, they're deceived by the serpent. And the serpent makes them question the goodness of God. And so they take of the apple or the fruit, right? We think of it as an apple. They take of the fruit and... They try to play God. That's the idea there, is that they usurp God. They try to play God, and then sin is introduced. And it says in Genesis 2, the last thing that is perfect in Eden is that they are naked and unashamed, and that is the first thing that's undone in Genesis 3, is that they see that they're naked, and they feel shame. Shame is a consequence of sin. And if you didn't think things could get any worse last week, well, all you have to do is turn to Genesis 4, and things spin out of control even more. This is a dark portion of scripture. It's even hard to preach. But again, this portion of scripture, it tells us about ourselves. Think about, think about it this way. Cain and Abel, they don't know a world without sin. And it's a fun imaginative exercise to think, did Adam and Eve tell them about the world when it was the way it ought to be? We don't know a world without sin. So this tells us about ourselves and it tells us, this passage tells us that Sin wants what's worse for us. And it also explains to us the contours of sin, that sin wants to rule you. Sin leaves us bloody, and sin makes us wanderers. But I don't just want to tell you about it. I want to show you. So if you could turn to Genesis 4 with me, we're going to break our scripture up into three different chunks. The first chunk is verses 1 through 7. So let me read that for us now. 
Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And I want to stop right there. And if you've read this passage before, you might have a question on, okay, why did God have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's offering? And I do think there's a clue in this text here, and it says that, it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, which is by old covenant law what he was required to do when he was giving a sacrifice. And it doesn't specify that about Cain. It says Cain just brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. But if that's still confusing to you and you don't really see the difference, I think that's also the point, is that what's happening here is something that is unseen. This is a matter of the heart. There's a difference between Cain and Abel. And I know that because in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 4, it says, by faith, Abel's offering was received by God and it was declared to him as righteous. It's a matter of the heart. Let's keep going. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do, will you not, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin is described as this animal, this wild beast. And I have a friend who has a friend who had a pet python. So I have a friend of a friend who had a pet python. And uh, he would take out his pet python, he would play with it, had its little home, and he would lay down next to it, and the pet python would come, like, like his buddy, just lay next to him. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I'm like, no, either, I couldn't do it. Um, but he would come and stretch out next to him, and he was like, oh, my, my buddy, my snake, you know, my best pal. And when he described, so he ended up taking his snake into the vet, and he described what he would do, and he would take it out, and the snake would lay next to him, and, you know, stretch out next to him, and the vet goes, um, you need to get rid of that snake. He's like, why? Well, the snake is measuring you to see if you're edible. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Sin measures you. Sin wants to rule you. And this concept of sin as a wild animal, I think Martin Luther does a really good job in his commentary. Yes, Martin Luther, who nailed the 95 theses on the wall, started the Protestant Reformation, he has a commentary about Genesis, and he says this about understanding sin is crouching at the door. Cain despised his brother and assumed himself to be the first place in all things. Sin was then lying still and asleep, but it was lying at the door, that is, in a place or state in which it was likely to be disturbed. For it is by the door that we go in and out, and therefore a place by no means adapted for long sleep. And this is also the very nature of sin. Although it does lie asleep, yet it lies in a place where it is not, not likely to sleep long. For Christ says, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. The wicked man thinks indeed his sin is asleep and hidden, but it lieth asleep at the door. And at length it is awakened by conviction, brought to light, and made known. For at the door and rest and sleep are things directly opposed to each other. Luther points out the irony here. 
We like to think that we can hide our sin and shove it in deep down. But he said, sin lies in waiting at a door. And a door is a place that you pass through. You expect to go through a door. You came in a door this morning. Maybe you went through multiple doors if you had to use the bathroom. A door is a place where you go in and out. Sin lies waiting at the door. We think we can hide our sin. The irony is that it lies in wait. And what is hidden will be revealed. Luther reminds us of that. Those are the words of Jesus. The beast waits to be disturbed. Kind of a sobering thought. So what are we to do with that? Are we supposed to panic when we think of sin? Be anxious, scared of the next time that we sin or become legalistic? No, that's, that's not the point. And Luther continues on. So he says two more sentences. He says, this part of Adam's speech, therefore, is intended to bring us to acknowledge what the life of the godly in the flesh is. Namely, that it is a perpetual struggle of the spirit against sin. Those, therefore, who sleep and snore and prepare themselves not for this fight are easily vanquished. Jacqueline and I were canoeing in Ohio two summers ago, and we actually canoed last summer, too. It, sorry, we kayaked. There's a difference. But so, um, yeah, so we, we kayaked, and we went with my family. So I have three sisters, one older, two younger, and they're all married. So their spouses were in, too. And so it was my parents, was a crew of us were kayaking or down the Cuyahoga River. And so when you kayak down a river, it's pretty easy, right? The river, if it's got a good flow, it's just kind of taking you. You don't have to paddle all that much. But at one point, my older sister and her husband were having some marital communication issues in their kayak. Sometimes kayaking brings that out. And so they ended up getting caught in like this branch and are almost tipping over and they can't get themselves out. So Jacqueline and I, we spin around and try to paddle back upstream. I don't know if you've ever paddled like a kayak when you're going up against the current. It can be pretty laborious. It's hard. And we ended up getting there and, and helping them out. But the point is, is that sin is defined as active. And we cannot be passive in our approach, our approach with sin. If sin is active, then we must be active too. So the Christian life is about being attentive, vigilant, and ready to battle whenever sin reveals itself. And how are we to do that? Well, Christians throughout the centuries have been using the spiritual disciplines to help them in this, to take ground against sin. But the primary way in which we take ground against sin is, I have an encouraging word for you, is that you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he sends the Holy Spirit as a deposit. And it's by partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit that's already working in us to sanctify us, make us more in the image of Jesus. We were partner with the work of the Holy Spirit through the, through the spiritual disciplines. And so the spiritual disciplines that come to mind when I think about what's helpful in the struggle against sin is prayer, scripture reading, and silence and solitude. And we're going to talk just, just a little bit about those right now. So prayer, prayer is the means by which we commune with God and draw upon his power. Jesus in his life, especially in the Gospel of Luke, he's known, it says that Jesus went out to pray as was his custom. This is something that he was known for. Instead of teaching and healing, he would go out to pray, and he was known for that. And Luke makes it clear that we're to be known as people of prayer. We're to be a praying people. We're to model Jesus in that way. And equally as important is scripture reading. And in Ephesians 6, Paul defines God's word as the sword of the spirit. Kind of an interesting 
phrase, that Scripture is the sword of the Holy Spirit. And that means that when we are seeped with God's truth, we are able to combat the lies that sin brings. And we see that in Jesus' life, too, when he's in the desert for 40 days or in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And then the enemy comes and tempts him three times. How does Jesus respond? He responds with Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy. And so we're supposed to model that in Jesus' life as well. And then silence and solitude. These are a little bit of a pairing. I think they go together. And I'll speak from my own personal experience, is that silence and solitude has allowed me to be way more attentive to the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in my life. And I'm also more attentive to my sin. And they're not, silence and solitude are not immediately restful places for me. In fact, it's where I, like my, my superficial securities are revealed to me. I realize how anxious I am, how distracted, how I depend upon things that really are shadow and shallow. And I'm confronted with all of that. And the early church fathers, they the Desert Fathers, they said that as well. They said, silence and solitude is the place where your dark abyss is opened up to you and you are confronted by your superficial securities. Not a comforting place. <laughs> we kind of think of silence and solitude as I'm going to go off and just take a moment to recharge. They didn't see it that way. And in my own personal experience, it hasn't been that way either. But it has helped me be attentive to the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in my life so that I can partner with Him. So prayer... Scripture reading, silence and solitude, and spiritual disciplines can kind of be laborious, right? Like you're paddling upstream. They absolutely can. But these are means of grace, that tools that Jesus has given us to partner with him in the work that he's already doing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So sin desires to rule you, and ultimately sin wants what's worse for you, but sin also leaves us bloody. Sin leaves us bloody. Would you turn in your Bibles again to the passage? We're going to go... Verse 8, the second chunk of scripture is verse 8 through 11. 8 through 10, actually, and I'll read it for us. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So here we go. Human 3 kills, murders, human four. This is the first family. And the drama in this narrative is not actually the killing itself. You see that the narrator, I mean, he kind of breezes past that. He says, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There's no details there. The real drama in this is God's pursuit of Cain. He comes to Cain asking a question. And why does God ask a question? Why does God ever ask a question in Scripture? Well, God never asks a question because he doesn't know, right? Well, he asks a question on behalf of the person he's asking the question to. So he's giving Cain the opportunity to confess and repent. We see a small picture of the mercy of God. And then it continues. Abel's response is obstinacy. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I can't help but see, like, hear the mocking tone in that. And it's almost like he's saying, I don't know. Isn't that your job, God? Shouldn't you know where he is? That's pretty intense. And John Calvin, the theologian, the Calvin of Calvinism, 
he has some wise words to say, not surprisingly, about this conversation between Cain and God. He says this, we must, however, conclude that Cain was examined not merely by the external voice of man, but by a divine voice, so as to make him feel that he had to deal directly with God. Let those, therefore, whose consciences accuse them beware lest, after the example of Cain, they confirm themselves in obstinacy. For this is truly to kick against God, to resist his spirit. Calvin translates this well for us, that there's danger in silencing the work of the Holy Spirit. We kind of push back the work of the Holy Spirit or his conviction in our lives. And we stand obstinate in our sin. And the danger here is that we know the danger that, or the, the destruction that our sin does in our life. We know the damage that our sin has done to others. Or we have felt the damage that other people's sin has done to us. We have felt that. There's a painting that's going up right now that I kept on the background of my computer screen as I was kind of writing my sermon throughout this week. And I stumbled across this, and this was a really interesting perspective I had never thought of before. So this is Adam and Eve finding the body of Abel. And this is painted by William Bougereau. And it doesn't take much research to find out that Bougereau was painting this right after his, the death of his second son. And so he covers, Adam is holding his hand over his heart in grief, fearing that his heart will fall out of his chest and break on the ground. And Eve is leaning into him, her face buried in her hands, weeping. This is heart-wrenching to me. And to think the shame that Adam and Eve felt knowing that they introduced sin into the world, and this is what happened. And we don't have to murder anyone to know the damage that our sin has done. Sin leaves us bloody. Or we have felt the damage that other people's sin has done to us. And for those of us who have experienced great loss in our lives, we know the world is not as it ought to be. Sin leaves us bloody. Sin wants to rule us, and ultimately, sin wants what's worst for us. Sin also makes us wanderers. And I know that's a bit of a strange point. Sin makes us wanderers. But I, trust me, we're going to flesh it out. We're going to turn to the last portion of our passage this morning. And that begins in verse 11. I'll read it. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In the original language, this reads as a court trial and sentencing. God tries Cain, he finds him guilty, and he sentences him to a life 
of being a fugitive and a wanderer in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Nod is just a linguistic Hebrew root for wandering. So literally it could be translated in the land of wandering, east of Eden. When I read this, I was struck by fugitive and wanderer, that he's sentenced to be a fugitive and wanderer. And in the NIV translation, it it says restless wanderer. I like that even better. Cain is sentenced to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Sin's punishment is great. When I was first looking at this to prepare the sermon, I was meeting up for coffee with Jeremy Dennis. You guys might know Jeremy. And we were meeting to talk through this Genesis 4 passage Um, he was going to help me start just preliminary thoughts. And so we talked about this restless wanderer idea. How many of us have felt at one stage in our lives that like we're a restless wanderer? And I don't mean literally. I mean, you might be couch hopping right now, and so you are a restless wanderer, and I have been there. So if that's where you're at. But I mean in our hearts, like in our innerness, feel like a restless wanderer. And I have felt like a restless wanderer before. I think specifically back to when I was transitioning into college. So I started my undergrad years at West Point Military Academy. That's where I began. And then I ended up leaving West Point. I felt like that is not where God was calling me to grow. It was strange because it's a privilege to be able to get an appointment to West Point Military Academy. So I was always going through that process there. It was an internal struggle for me. Is this... I don't, God, I don't feel like this is where you want me. And so I took a leap of faith and I left. People told me it was the worst financial decision I've ever made in my life, leaving a free education. And so I left and just trying to follow the call of God on my life. And I ended up at Taylor University playing men's soccer and I ended up being an economics major there. And it was in my second semester, my freshman year, that Jesus really became Lord over my life. I remember leading up to that time, I was going to church every once in a while, kind of living life as I wanted to, and then feeling guilty. So I would go to church to try to curry favor with God, get back in his good graces. And then I met this group of guys. They were kind of this edgy fringe group of guys who in college, you know, like the, they, were, they were like hipsters before, like before really hipster had been well-defined. And so I thought they were really cool, listened to cool music, and they read their Bible, and they were kind of on the, the fringe of campus, and they were having a prayer night, and I just remember when Jesus became personal to me, and his love was real, and I realized, oh, this is for me, and I felt washed by his grace. But I don't remember that prayer time as much as I remember the weeks following where I found myself in the prayer chapel, which is just not like me to cry all that much, but I was in the prayer chapel maybe once or twice a week, weeping over my sin, but also weeping over that God cared enough for me, a knucklehead guy like Penn Beasley, to send his son for me and my sin. Suddenly this was personal. So I've, I've felt like a restless wanderer, but then I stumbled across Augustine's famous line. It says, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And I know that to be true. And there is one who desires you more than your sin wants you. And he made you and he formed you for himself. Your heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. And there is one 
who by his blood can cleanse you of the bloodiness of your sin. Hebrews 12 says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So like Cain, the bloodiness of your sin might be crying out against you, but Jesus' blood speaks a better word. And there is one who calls restless wanderers. He says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And for those who are tired of doing their life on their own, he says, come to me and drink of me. I am living water, and you will no longer thirst again. You will be satisfied. Sin wants what's worse for you. God wants what's best for you. Lean into him. And if you've been trying to fix yourself, I understand what that's like. If you've been trying to cleanse yourself, I get it. What I want to encourage you to do is surrender to Jesus and let the blood of the lamb wash over you. The God who made himself man and strapped up and nailed up to a beat up pole and bled out for you. His grace is enough for you. It's enough for Ben Beasley. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing our sin and thankful for your word which shows us the reality of who we are and the reality of the world. Thank you for your son who died for us that we no longer have to strive but we can surrender knowing that your blood, Jesus, says a better word than the bloodiness of our sin. Help us to fall on your grace each day. Lord, we love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.